Well, thanks for coming and being with us this evening. I, I'm happy for the opportunity I have to stand before you and talk about the Bible. I want to talk to you tonight about peace. The Bible talks quite a bit about peace. And it is kind of amazing to me at how many times this word peace shows up in the explanation that the New Testament gives and even the Old Testament gives in prophecy that the New Testament gives in talking about salvation and right standing with God, justification, how much the word peace is used to describe that situation. And I want to start out tonight by reading in Ephesians, the second chapter, Ephesians 2. After Paul had talked about being dead in, de in trespass trespasses and sins, the first part of the chapter, and then talking about the rich mercy of God in bringing us and grace of God that brings us uh, salvation. In verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, both Jew and Gentiles. Subject. Remember, Ephesians, of course, was in the Gentile world, and many of the Christians in the church at Ephesus would have been Gentiles. So it's very appropriate. It was very appropriate that he was talking about this subject. Very uh, advantageous to them that he talked about this subject. Peace. Peace not only with God, but peace between Jew and Gentile. And he's made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition, or middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments containing ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. There's the word again. Thus making peace. And it's shown that peace is made between Jew and Gentile as they both come to God and receive salvation. And then as he continues, in verse 17, and he came and preached peace. How have we known about, how has this peace come to us? Of course, we read it in the New Testament. We're still teaching it from the New Testament. We preach it from the New Testament. But this peace came from God to us through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ which is the preaching of peace with God and peace among one another, those who follow after Jesus and have come to him uh, for salvation. So he came and preached peace to you who are far off, the Gentiles, and to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Notice the connection there. The peace cannot be had, not the peace that's talked about here in the scriptures, cannot be had without having peace with the God of heaven. 
Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners. The Gentiles had been at one time. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And remember now, the household of God or the house of God is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15, the Apostle Paul, the same Apostle, makes that point. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, temple, the dwelling place of God. You know, in the Old Testament scriptures, the most, the holy place and the most holy place, were, these were the dwelling places of God. The temple was the dwelling place of God. And so that comes about today. In the church, back in verse 16, and he, he, that he might reconcile both them both to God in one body through the cross. So the body of Jesus Christ, the spiritual body of Jesus Christ, of course, it identified in this same book just a few verses before this in chapter 1 at the end of chapter 1. And he put all things under his feet, under the feet of Christ, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. So this is all connected together, you see, in these passages of Scripture. Also, in Acts, the 10th chapter, at verse 36, the apostle Peter, preaching to the household of Cornelius, just beginning that preaching to them, he said, The word which God sent forth to the children of Israel, pe preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. We'll have great occasion to read some more in that context in just a little while. But this goes right along with what we read in Ephesians 2 at verse 17. He came and preached peace to you that were far off and to those that were nigh. So, just as Paul says, Paul makes this very clear in Romans, the fifth chapter, at verse 1. Having been justified, therefore having been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, as I said a while ago, this peace is definitely connected with salvation from sin. And this, in this passage, it talks about justification, which is talking about being made right with God. The righteousness that is give, put down to our account is justification, as I've made the point before in some teaching and preaching. And so here, we are justified through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are made right in God's sight through the forgiveness that we receive through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul makes it very clear. Mr. Vines, who has the Greek dictionary, or dictionary of Greek words, 
in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament. But with regard to this word peace, he says it's the harmonized relationship between God and man accomplished through the gospel. And that's what we've already been reading about in the, in the scriptures. We have none of this. We do not have the justification or the salvation. We do not have the peace with God separate and apart from the gospel or from the separate and apart from the preaching of the gospel. So Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in the righteousness, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And when he says the righteousness of God is revealed, he's not talking about specifically God as being a righteous being. He's talking about how God makes us righteous, how God justifies us, brings justification to us, brings righteousness to us. The state of being right is the idea of justification and being justified. So, peace carries with it the idea of tranquility, contentment, rest, reconciliation. All of these words are associated with peace in the New Testament. Reconciliation, unity, and salvation. And it's interesting to me that before I get through tonight, I hope to bring up a part of a part of this subject that to many people in the world would appear to be a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. It's a necessary part of God's plan of peace. But as we've been emphasizing, peace comes through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It came to us that way. These apostles and those on whom they laid hands in the beginning and wrote these words down in the New Testament. What were they doing when they did that? They were preaching the peace that we're reading about now. And Christ is our peace again, I emphasize, in Ephesians 2.14. He's the person of that peace. He's the one that brought God through him, brought about this plan whereby we could have peace with them. You remember what Isaiah the prophet said about this? When he talked about unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, what? Prince of Peace. He's the ruler of this peace. He's the leader in this peace. He is the one through whom God has provided us this peace. And you know, one of the things that's been interesting to me I had, I think I always had a little bit wondering as to why this expression was used in the book of Philippians. I'll get it right in a minute. It's in the book of Ephesians, rather. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, the same chapter from which we, or same book from which we started tonight. In Ephesians 6, at verse 15, he's, He's naming the different parts of the Christian's armor. 
Verse 13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Well, that's sometimes the nature of figurative or symbolic language. Symbolism is being used here in that expression. But it's all, always kind of strange, strange to me why it would be expressed like this. But when you stop to think about it, as it's put in all of these passages and the fact that this peace comes through the preaching of the gospel, how is it going to be spread? <laughs> through the feet of the preacher. That is, he must go to do the preaching. And so feet is used to emphasize that point of, symbolically emphasize that point of the doing of the going. Go, Paul, Jesus said to his apostles in the Great Commission, go into all, go into all the world and preach. What are they going to have to travel? And as they travel, they're going to have to do the, going to have to do the preaching. So their feet, we, our feet are to be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And that's our mission and purpose, is to try to get others to come to this peace through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that passage in the uh, Roman letter, in Romans 10, Romans 10, beginning at verse, uh, well, let's begin at verse 13. For whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they believe, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And that is a quotation. That verse 15 is a quotation of Isaiah 52 at verse 7. The great prophecy of Isaiah, the the prophet whose words are more messianic probably than any other of the prophets of the Old Testament. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. God is on his throne. Jesus is on his throne. He's sitting. The position of authority at the right hand of the throne of the Father above. And they have sent out these messengers, these apostles. The word apostle is sometimes translated in the scriptures by the word messenger. In fact, in the New Testament, There's a distinction made between 
the apostles of Christ and the apostles of churches. There's different passages of scripture which when when these men were sent out by churches and supported by churches to go preach the gospel, they are called messengers. But it's the same word in the Greek that is translated apostles. In fact, the word apostle is really not a translation. It is a transliteration. The original Greek word for apostle is apostolos. And so the word messenger is more of a translation. So it's interesting to me that Isaiah prophesied of this peace that would come through Jesus Christ and the sacrifice provision that God has made through him for our salvation. And you know, back in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke, the first chapter, at verse 79, what's going on in this chapter? Well, I'll not read all of this chapter to make this point. Verse 59 says, So it was on the eighth day, John the Baptist has been born now. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. So that introduces it to us. But now down in Zacharias, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, begins to speak about this son. John the Baptist, that he would be the forerunner and the one who would prepare the way for the coming of Jesus Christ. And among the things that he said, well, in verse 76, he put it this way, and you, child, talking to uh, John the Baptist, you, child, they've come to uh, circumcise John the Baptist when this was taking place. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, which, with which this day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. To guide our feet in the way of peace. And one more passage with regard to this. And this is in Philippians, the fourth chapter. Philippians 4 at verse 7. You've often heard this passage read. You read it yourself. Be anxious for nothing, verse 6 says, but in everything but prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You mean we can't understand this peace? Well, there's a whole lot about it we can understand. 
But to illustrate the point, many people in this world today, still after all of these years and all of the preaching's been done, there are many people who have the idea this is the craziest thing I've ever heard of. God providing salvation by people by causing his son to die. Well, that's explained in the New Testament. To some degree, we may still be astonished by it. It's not something. In other words, this is not something that man could have come up with. This is one of the proofs of the inspiration of the Scripture. You leave it to men, and men would have never come up with such a plan. It even amazes us who are benefiting from this plan that God has set forth. This peace that he's provided through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. I was about to overlook that passage in Colossians 1 at verse 20 where it says, And by him, that is by Christ, for he pleased the Father, verse 19 of Colossians 1, that in him all that is in Christ, all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, having made peace with God and peace with all who would come to God through Jesus Christ, through the sacrifice, through the blood, through the death of Jesus Christ. But now, I want us to go to Matthew, the 10th chapter. Matthew 10. And I'm going to start reading at verse 34. And most all of you, if not every one of you, know enough about this to know it's not going to shock you. But there's a lot of people in this world, after what I've already said, when we come to this passage, would probably be shocked by it. Jesus is saying, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. What's he saying? Is, is this a contradiction of what we've just been reading and studying? Jesus comes now and says, I did not come to bring peace on the earth. Well, let's read a little bit. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter-in-law against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. What's Jesus talking about? What's he trying to get over to us? Well, let me raise this question. If we're going to have peace with God through what Jesus has done to done for us, we're going to receive this great salvation and this, this forgiveness of sins and justification being made right with God. It's not unconditional, it's conditional, isn't it? And let me raise another question now. 
Is everybody going to appreciate in the world? Is everybody going to appreciate what we believe and what we do? And that we, are, we have submitted ourselves to Jesus Christ and we're following after his will? That's not even the case in our own country. There's a pretty large faction in our society today that wants to do away with the religion of Jesus Christ in our country. Well, what are we supposed to do with them? Are we supposed to hate them? No. In fact, you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to them. Pray for them. Well, what's going on? Well, we have the responsibility of treating everybody right. You know, one of the commandments in the uh, 12th chapter of the book of Romans is that as much as lies within you with regard to the ability that you have and the opportunity, you live peaceably with all men. But there's some people in this world that make it their business that they're not that uh, those who follow Christ are not going to be at peace with them. And sometimes you have to just go your own way and not not try to do have too much contact with that kind of a person. But you don't mistreat them. You don't you don't do something to them to try to try to aggra aggravate them. The principle that Brother Richard taught us in our Bible class this morning applies very appropriately here when he was talking about uh, how we are to how we are to act as Christians with regard to in our civil government relationship and uh, when 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 the government commands us to do something that's not according to his will we just have to go about quietly in our lives with the attitude that we must obey God rather than men, like the apostles did. In fact, they told, they told the officials in Jerusalem, you'll just have to do whatever you think you must do with us, but we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We're going to keep on preaching, and you'll just have to do whatever you think you've got to do to us. But they didn't get out and gather a big crowd together and walk up and down the streets of Jerusalem and make a big demonstration and start creating a bunch of havoc because of that. They just, they just did what God wanted them to do, what, kept on doing what God wanted them to do and lived like he wanted them to. And that's the same principle that we must do with regard to those who may become our enemies, whether it's simply personal enemies or enemies because of our faith. And what he's talking about here, he goes on and tells us what that means. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's the very next verse after he said, The man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And that reminds me of a young man that I became friends to, close friends to. He made a gospel preacher when I was in college. And he had been with the brethren who were more, who were of the institutional type, promoting human institutions supported by church. And his, his mother told him she would have rather he died than go and be with those folks. Did he did he make a big great did he make a big de, uh, demonstration about that? No, he just went on trying to serve the Lord, trying to please the Lord, and continued to love his mother. Jesus is not telling us in this passage, and one of the ways to prove that is uh, Luke, the fourteenth chapter. You remember how Luke how. Jesus puts it according to Luke in Luke 14. At verse 26, yes. At verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Some people have used that and said, well, that's, that's just ridiculous. Well, you've got to understand what Jesus is saying. In the scriptures, and there are several examples. In fact, I preached a lesson here several years ago in which I went to some Old Testament passage. For instance, when a man had two wives and one was loved and the other was unloved. Well, the one, it simply means he loved one more than he loved the other. This is not telling us, Jesus is not saying, don't love your father and mother as we ordinarily think of that. You take the two verses together, the one from Matthew and this one, he's saying, you love your parents even and your children less than you love God and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, you must not put family, no matter how much you love them, you, mu you, you must not put family ahead of the Lord. I've known people that as long as their parents were living, they would not obey the gospel because they knew it would disappoint their parents and they, they didn't want to do that. Well, they're living as a they are a living demonstration of what Jesus told people not to do if they want to be his disciples and receive the benefits and have the peace with him and the Father above. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves sinners. God loves those who may be his enemies. He wants them to change and to be saved. 
But this is why we often use the expression, hate sin, love the sinner. We are told in the scriptures that God hates every false way. Which says, God hates every sin. He hates the sins that I commit. He hates the sins that every one of you commits. But He loves all of us. So much so that He gave His Son so that we could have peace with Him, with Jesus, and with all the redeemed of all ages. And if we hold on to that faith, we can gather around that throne in eternity and sing sing praises to our God and give Him thanks throughout eternity for what He has done for us. Now that may not go over to a real young person as much as it would to fellows like me. Because I know that I and some others in this audience, we're not going to be here in this life very much longer. And I want to be, and I want every one of you to be among those who hear the Lord welcome us home. If you need to respond to the invitation tonight, come as together we stand and sing. Oh.